Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the text, of which I'll be pulling from that chapter 13 once again, and also from the end of that upper room discourse from chapter 17. I'd like to prompt you to listen for the word glory or glorify as we go through these two passages, John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. So when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now I'm going to John 17. And this we refer to as Christ's great high priestly prayer, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes into heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now skipping down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me with their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would attend the preaching of your word now with your spirit and glorify yourself in Christ in our presence and hallow your name here this night. Bring us more under his lordship and, O oh Lord, thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is done in heaven. And so send out your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin our evening tonight with John 13, it is 
the beginning of what we call the Upper Room Discourse, and John spends more time in this particular part of the Upper Room with Jesus and the disciples than any other the, of the Gospels, and he takes up five entire chapters of his entire Gospel dedicated to the details of what Jesus was doing and instructing his disciples shortly before he went out into the garden, was betrayed, was tried, and then was crucified upon a Roman cross. As we see in the beginning of this upper room discourse, he begins with a very humble act. As they had prepared the way for Passover to be celebrated in this upper room, he started the entire evening by washing his disciples' feet. And Peter, you might recall, recoiled at the very thought that his teacher, the Lord, the Christ, would wash his feet. This was, culturally speaking, not uncommon in the day that in the time that people would walk in sandals for long journeys when they came into someone's home or they visited someone that the host of the home would have water in a basin where he could wash his own feet. It is also customary in that day that if there was a notable rabbi and his disciples who were following him and learning under his instruction and tutelage, it would be common for those disciples of this rabbi to do any of the menial tasks that a slave was expected to do, except one, and that is wash the rabbi's feet. And here we do not see the disciples washing Jesus' feet, but the rabbi washing his disciples' feet. That would not have been cultural. And so shocking was it, it imprinted a picture in their mind and as well as ours in this great act of service. The disciples were still wrangling about who would be the greatest. They would continue that. And yet here was Jesus giving an example of greatness. He washed his disciples' feet and then he goes on to instruct them. Judas leaves, and then the leaven is taken out of the company of Christ and the disciples, and Jesus leans into them now and begins with a very tender address, and he says, little children, little children. And he begins to teach them in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 of the doctrine of the Trinity to prepare them for the greatest crisis in their lives. And then when he ended that discourse, he prayed in John 17. It's an astounding prayer. He prays out loud... Son to Father, God to God, Christ to Creator, Father to Son, Son to Father. 
And he prays out loud so that the disciples can hear. But it was a personal prayer in the first person singular to the Father. They were merely listening in. It has been given to us as well so that we can listen in. And he prays specifically for these that he has kept in the Father's word and name. He has fulfilled the Father's will perfectly. And he's asking the Father, now glorify your Son. Because you will be glorified in me. And glorify them. And bring them into the oneness that you and I share. And he prays this not only for the disciples, but as our text pulled up, he prays for those who would believe. That's you and me. We are hearing our Savior's personal prayer for you and me to the Father in this chapter. And that's why it's referred to as the great high priestly prayer as Jesus intercedes in behalf of those for whom his atonement was made. We have two scenes, and both of these are bookends in this upper room. The first, when he washes his disciples' feet, and the second, when he prays for them. And these two bookends are saturated with the text of glorify, glorify, glorify. And he speaks about... His glory, and he speaks about the Father's glory, and he speaks about the Father's glory in him because the two of them had the same purpose in saving sinners and saving those that the Father gave to the Son, the Son in no wise cast out. And he saved them to the uttermost so that not one of them was lost. And the glory of Christ as He stoops to save sinners is the glory of the Father whose will He is willing to do. Paul would later speak of the glory of the cross. Jesus is speaking about His glorification in a way that is contrary to the way us humans would think and understand about glory. We would not comprehend it in His terms, but He is looking to the cross as the glory. You might remember in our Old Testament imagery that brought us up to this point in time. When God delivers His people out of Egypt in the big exodus, the imagery there picturing our redemption through the Passover, the death of the firstborn, through the blood, we are brought out of the bondage of slavery. And we are led into a promised land where a tabernacle would be erected and God would then dwell with His people And the last part or last half of Exodus is taken up with this tabernacle imagery. 
And this is where God would dwell among his people and tabernacle among them, identifying with their lot and pitching his tent right in the middle of all of their tents. And he empowers his people to build this structure exactly the way he gave it to Moses to build because every detail of that tabernacle had significance. Inside the holy place, which was a tent in a room, a rectangular structure, and then at the end of that, separated internally by a veil, we have behind the veil what we call the Holy of Holies. It was the most beautiful of the entire structure of the tabernacle. It's ironic, isn't it? Because human eyes couldn't see it. That's where all of the the beauty of the tapestry, of the finely woven, different dyed with uh, colors all around. And in the middle, as the fixture, we have... The presence of the ark, all over covered with gold, and then one single solid gold lid that sits upon the ark that had angels, that was one piece with the lid that was hammered out. And these cherubim, cherubim were the attendants of God's holiness. And when the tabernacle was finally dedicated, the Shekinah glory of God in that fiery cloud descended down upon the tabernacle and then it lit and sat upon the atoning lid, the mercy seat. And there God was enthroned in the praises of his people. It was the throne room of God, the most holy and sacred place upon the earth. In the Ark of the Covenant were ten commandments which showed forth the very nature of God. The sum of those ten commandments was to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. The heart of the ten commandments was love. And we have fallen short of all of those commandments and we are guilty. And we are in the bondage of sin and in the slave market in sin, back in Egypt in our sins. But God made a way for us to approach His holy throne through the blood of the vicarious atonement of innocent blood that would then go in our place. And that blood once a year on the Day of Atonement was taken into the throne room of God and it was manipulated upon the throne, the atoning lid. So that when God looks down at His Ten Commandments and all of the perfections that they are, the law is holy and good. And He sees where men have fallen short, everyone. There's not a single one that's righteous. No, not one. And we are all condemned. But what He sees there is the blood. The blood 
and his wrath is appeased, and the sins for whom that blood was given are cleansed, and there is peace with the sinner with God because of the blood. And Jesus is going to the cross in the fulfillment of all of that imagery. The cross is the place where the blood would be shed. The cross is the place where God will look down and His wrath is now appeased for the sinners for whom Christ died. The cross is the mercy seat. It's the atoning lid. The cross is the throne of Jesus. And this is a glory to God the Father that He has given the Son this assignment, has appointed Him as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus loves the Father. And He came to do not His will, but the Father's will. And He did it perfectly. And here He is on the eve of His crucifixion. And He says, I have completed the work You've given Me to do. Now glorify Your Son, because You, Father, will be glorified in Me. Our purpose is one You've chosen those whom I came to save. I've not lost a one. No one has plucked a single one out of my hand. I have kept them by your name. Now glorify your son. It's time. And we see a lot of the glorification of the son now speaking in terms of what's about to happen on the cross But both of those teachings in John 13 and John 17 about the glorification of God, the glorification of the Son, and the Father glorified in Him, and His people glorified in Him, has two principles connected to it, one in chapter 13 and one in chapter 17. In each of those principles, there's a testimony about Christ to the world. In John chapter 13... The sacrificial love that Christ has for His community people, He then tells them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. Now He says a new commandment. Loving one another is certainly not a new commandment. We know that we are to love God, we are to love our neighbors ourselves, but something new here. This is a covenantal love that Jesus has particularly for his people. And it was a love that he particularly has for his people that he's willing to take their sins upon himself and die upon the cross and to be the complete vicarious substitutionary atonement for their sins. And he brings us in his covenant love right into the love of the Godhead. So that as God looks upon us He sees His Son. As He loves us, it's as if He loves His Son. He loves us no less than He loves His Son. It's incomprehensible. It's a covenantal love. 
And this particular love of which God has for us in Christ Jesus to particularly save us from our sins and particularly to take our particular sins upon his cross and to die for us particularly is that which is forming a community of Christ lovers in the church. And the newness of the command stems from the very love of God in Christ now on display upon the cross for them. And this new community has been created on the basis of Jesus' work here and this new relationship that he has with this community, the church. And it is a love for Christ's people for Christ's sake that he commands us to go and love one another in this particular way. Yes, we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, but we love the brethren particularly like Christ loves them. Loves them to serve them. Love enough to see that Christ has died for them as he has died for me. We accept him and her as he has accepted me. It is in the view of Christ's great love and what he did for me as he served me, as he saved me, that we are to, to serve God's people and love them in the same manner. Go and do likewise, he says. And the testimony that comes along with that principle in chapter 13 is a testimony about Christ in the world. And it is by this that the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another this way. Over in chapter 17, there's a different principle, but the glorification that he speaks about in 13 is one and the same as he's speaking about in 17. And he says in chapter 17, as he's praying that prayer, he says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they may be perfect in one. In chapter 13, the glorification was identified with the very love of Christ and the command to, for us to love that the world might know Christ. It is to the glory of Christ. In chapter 17, it's that we might be one in the same manner that the Father and the Son are one. Not in this manner of which we become deity. That's not the reference. But the idea that the Father so loved the Son and showed Him all things, and the Son then was obedient to do the Father's will, not His own, and so that He conformed His will to the Father's will so that they had one purpose and they were unified in that purpose together. And this is what He prays for the church. Now you be one with God. Not your will be done, but the Father's will in Christ be done. That's what he desires. He loves you, and he shows you all things. And you then are to be obedient with the things he shows you. 
And he brings you into this fellowship of the Trinity. And that is why Jesus spent so many pages and John wrote so many pages to us of the Trinity in John 13 and 14, 15, 16, and here 17. Because of this oneness and this covenant love. And that also was a testimony to the world is this unity so that the world might know that the Father has sent the Christ. When the church is unified in this manner, it testifies to the world that this Jesus is the one that God has sent and He is God. And He is living. And He is the Creator. And He is the Lord and Sovereign over all. This is our Jesus. And this is our King. So God is glorified in our love for one another. He's glorified in our unity with one another. And this is what Christ was going to the cross to achieve. And this is what was His glory. And this would be the Father's glory in Him. And this is our glory too. We have opportunity to serve Jesus as we serve one another. As we give even but a cup of cold water to the least of these of his brethren. It's as if you've done it to Jesus. Christ showed us the example in the most humbling of circumstances. That was not even customary for a rabbi not even for the disciples to wash a rabbi's feet, much less a rabbi to wash his disciples' feet. And Jesus stooped to the lowest position he could stoop, even to the point of death, even the death of a Roman cross. That we might have life, that we might have glory, and that we might have great joy. Sacrificial love striving together for the unity of the faith. This is what glorifies our Lord. And then he leads them out into the garden. And he prays with the intensity, the likes of which the world has never known. His hour has come. He is glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, the work that we contemplate this evening and through this weekend is beyond our comprehension. And yet you have revealed it to us in your word, and it is true. We give ourselves to it. We give our lives to it. We give our entire eternal eternity to it. And we know that the glory which we will have will not be compared to all the sufferings that we go through in this life. And so we look forward to that great joy when Christ comes back and we are resurrected here upon the earth and the glory fills this earth as the waters do the sea. Until that time when Christ comes back, may we be found faithful, loving one another, serving one another, 
and that we would strive with one another for the unity of the faith, that the world might glorify our Creator and our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.